The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network show and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And uh, as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, those of you who have put your name on Chen's waiting list, well, now is the time to sign up for his letter. You have until about the middle of this month to do so. Uh, you can, however, sign up for my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And in fact, this week I am offering a free copy of last week's newsletter. I've had several, I think, very interesting companies that I've written about in last week's newsletter. You can go to, uh, you can send my assistant Claudio Bossi an email. Just simply go to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, T-A-Y-L-O-R at gmail.com. And just tell them you'd like to get a free copy of my weekly newsletter. Uh, some very, I think, very interesting stories in there. Some very interesting companies that I've written about. So uh, if you'd like to take advantage, just test my weekly letter. And then uh, my monthly letter is really a composite of the best of the weeks. Uh, so, But in any event, you can call uh, you could also call Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or again, send an email to him at questions4taylor at gmail.com and request a free sample copy of last week's weekly newsletter, uh, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. I also like to mention that you should call or go to J. Taylor Media, J-A-Y Taylor Media. That's really the best place to access everything I do, including accessing this radio show and you can follow me also on twitter under the handle j taylor media well this is the first week of a new season our 13 week seasons our year is carved up into four seasons this is the summer season uh and rightfully so it's hot as the blazes here in new york right now in the uh in the mid to upper 90s uh our uh with our new season we have some new sponsors uh this week uh, we are welcoming Blue Gold Waters Technologies Limited and uh, Prophecy Platinum. Uh, returning sponsors will be Golden Arrow Resources and SGX Resources. I should like to mention just a, a couple of things about our new sponsors 
I didn't mention Balmoral Resources, which is also a new sponsor. I failed to mention them. So we have three new ones, Balmoral Resources, Blue Gold Waters Technologies, and Prophecy Platinum uh, are our new sponsors. Balmoral trades at 28.5 cents, 84, about 85 million shares outstanding, a $24 million market cap, has a historical gold resource in its uh, in its Quebec property, the Martinier property, in the Abitibi Greenstone Belt of Quebec, uh, of a, just under a million ounces. But the company has put out some very impressive drill intercepts, and I expect that they will be coming out with a 43101 resource. This is a recommendation in my newsletter, and I do own it personally uh, as well. Blue Gold Water Technologies. Yes, this is something other than a gold mining company, although it is a company that uh, has some technologies supposedly to re, uh, to recover some precious metals from tailings uh, heaps in South Africa where it's going to be uh, supposedly we should be getting some news from that in the not too distant future however the company has reported that it is uh, its main business which is uh, really recovery of uh, our purification water purification that it's doing that very effectively and profitably in Mexico well if this company can do all it says it can do using its proprietary nanotechnologies, then I think this is going to be a huge winner. It's selling at 28 cents as well, and uh, 70, call it 78 million shares, gives it a $22 million market cap. I'm really looking forward to learning more about this company. I do not have it in my newsletter. I have purchased shares as a private placement some time ago uh, in Blue Goldwater Technologies. So I'm really uh, personally very interested in learning more about this uh, company and if it can do all it says it can do, then we're really looking at a huge winner. Uh, Prophecy Platinum. We're going to be talking to Greg Johnson in the second half, uh, second hour at about four, at about f- uh, four thirty today. Really interesting company. I think one of the most outstanding uh, Platinum Group metals projects anywhere. Uh, in the Wellgreen project in the Yukon. I visited this project. It is a recommendation in my newsletter. I do own shares in Prophecy Platinum as well. Um, and then the other company, uh, well, th- those are the three that are the new ones, Prophecy Platinum, uh, Blue Gold Water uh, Technologies, and Balmoral Resources. Those are the three new sponsors to the show. And then returning SGX Resources with some spectacular uh, intercepts of uh, the, on their project in Toronto, uh, in Ontario, doing some very nice work there. Uh, I think a very promising, but albeit very speculative, uh, penny exploration stock. And then Golden Arrow Resources, which I believe is definitely on to a major silver discovery, selling at twenty-five cents uh, market cap uh, of something around uh, ten million dollars or so. I really very interesting story. Well, uh, today let's get to today's show. Uh, we've titled the show Fraudulent Fiat Money, Currency Wars, and Gold. James Rickards and Andy Hoffman, uh, Andy's also known as Ranting Andy, they will visit for the first time to talk about this topic. James Rickards, uh, I expect, will talk about how adversary nations outside of the Anglo-American empire can and are using currency wars as a means of self-defense against the American expansionism. Rickards, who has helped the Pentagon understand the role of finance and currencies in the overall quest for power by the leading players in the world stage, will talk, I expect, about some of the unintended consequences of the uh, current Western world's policies. Hoffman, uh, Andy, will talk about how the current economic and monetary policies of the U.S. are leading inexorably towards an eventual plunge in the dollar uh, and confidence and what 
That will mean for honest money, that is gold and silver. Also, for the first time, as I mentioned, Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Prophecy Platinum, will visit to talk about that company's Wellgreen project. And um, last, uh, the very last at the end of today's show, I expect to talk a little bit, to summarize today's show, I expect to talk a little bit about Charles Nanner's latest proclamations with respect to the gold and silver markets and some of the other markets. Uh, I will summarize today's show, and I'll also talk about what's coming up next week. Well, we do have to go to break right now, uh, but uh, don't go away because I have some very interesting, I think, and very insightful things to say, compliments of James Turk uh, that he did uh, a couple of days ago on King World News. This is very important information. I think it bears very definitely on our investment decisions, so don't go away. I'll be right back with some comments uh, from uh, comments on what James Turk has recently said. Don't go away. I'll be right back. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper Property, a large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit Prophecy you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, well, before we go to James Rickards uh, at a half past the hour, I want to just bring up some very interesting and I think very insightful comments that James Turk made on King World's news uh, this past Monday. Uh, in the uh, King World News headlined uh, the title of the interview with James Turk, something shocking has occurred in the gold markets. Uh, Turk starts out by saying that there are two major events underway now that everyone should be paying very close attention to. First, the interest rates are rising, and that is very strange given the fact that the economy re- remains in the doldrums or even in a depression. Now, certainly, if you use John Williams' work, you have to think that we are actually in a depression for most Americans, not the rich and powerful at the top, to be sure, the top 1%, but most Americans are finding it more and more difficult. Well, anyway, uh, using looking at some of John Williams' work, he says using consistent seasonals, the June payrolls rose only by about 160,000 workers, but full-time employment plunged by 240,000 workers in June. This is full-time people that are working shrunk by 240,000 people. The number of short-term discouraged workers increased by 247,000. Those are numbers from the government. The June unemployment rate, the government's rate, the numbers that they put out there, uh, 7.6% or using the U3 measure, uh, 
it's uh, or the U6 measure, it's 14.3% unemployment. That counts people that are somewhat discouraged. But using uh, the Williams numbers, the numbers that were used during the Great Depression, were at 23.4% uh, unemployment. So the economy remains extremely weak. The Fed has talked about tapering, that is reducing its printing press money, but at the same time, it is continuing to buy uh, that $85 billion a month worth of, of debt. In fact, John Williams says that the Fed is now buying 90.5% of the new debt that the government is putting out in the economy. So there's huge amounts of printing press money going into the system, and the economy remains in the toilet. Why are rates rising with the economy performing so bad and with the Fed pumping? Pumping, pumping more money like it's never done before. Well, James Turk suggests that the Fed... Uh, has now lost control of the markets because the markets are worrying about inflation. And uh, he's making the point that capital is seeking to protect itself by demanding higher rates. Okay, fine. So the, that could very well be the case. I, I think James may be on to something there. The second point he wants to bring out, though, and brought out in his, uh, in his interview with uh, King World News, is that gold is in backwardation. Now, gold... That means, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, that gold for short-term delivery is higher than gold due in the f- for future delivery down the m- in, into the future. Well, normal, that, it, it isn't all that unnormal. or um, It's fairly normal for commodities uh, that get consumed frequently, that don't have a very short uh, shelf life, that it's oil and other things, um, other commodities that have a constant consumption, uh, it's, it's sometimes when there's supply disruptions, you can have this backwardation in the oil markets. And as James points out, uh, the, um, you know, people come in to take advantage of that uh, into the markets. For example, if, you're, uh, if you can get more for oil that you own today, you sell it today and go out and buy a futures contract, confident you're going to get your oil back. And you can make money today, not have to store the oil, and you can also use that money to invest and, do, and make money with that money during the period of time uh, until, you, uh, until you buy the oil back. Uh, so that's what the, the arbitrageurs do normally, uh, and that's a strategy that makes sense and it happens frequently in oil with disruptions of supply, etc. Uh, but that's not normal for gold because there is a huge omnipresent supply of the yellow metal, not like oil that gets consumed in a very short period of time. So why does the backwardization uh, in gold remain? Why don't holders of gold do what arbitrageurs of oil do, namely sell the gold at the higher price and go out and buy a contract uh, to take delivery back in the future? Well, the answer, according to James, is because this potential profit depends on the ability uh, of the entity selling the futures contract uh, to deliver that metal in the future. And to quote James Turk in his interview with King World News, he says, and I quote, uh, gold, backwardation, gold backwardation is occurring because the big bullion dealers, hedge funds, and arbitrageurs do not want to take this risk. The phenomenon hi- this phenomenon highlights the difference between physical metal and all of its paper substitutes. When backwardization in the metals occurs, it means two things. First, people want physical metal and a paper promise to deliver uh, and not a paper promise to deliver metal in the future. Secondly, it means that the physical market is starting to drive the price of the metal rather than what we have been seeing in the recent past months where the paper, is, uh, the paper selling drove gold and silver prices to abnormally low levels. The bottom line, Eric, 
uh, Jim says, is that in a year or two, when we look back at today, we will marvel at how cheap the price of physical gold and physical silver plummeted too. Well, I certainly have no qualms at all with James and his view of gold. Uh, on the interest rate, so I think there's some, some ideas that are out there that might not be totally consistent with James. Certainly James' view of an inflationary world and that the markets are starting to discount inflation is certainly possible. Uh, on the other hand, I think um, Robert Prechter uh, last year went sh- really uh, took a, his first bearish view on the bond market in a long time. And he noted that there are three reasons why interest rates could rise. First of all, and the one you're going to hear from the happy talking Orwellian mainstream propaganda machine is that the economy is getting better, therefore interest rates are rising. Well, that would be a good reason for interest rates to rise. I wish it were so. Uh, and the second reason is uh, that the one that James just mentioned, that is inflation is out there on the horizon. The markets are perceiving inflation, and so they're demanding more uh, interest for their savings. Fair enough. The other possibility is that the markets are growing fearful of massive default. And we've seen massive defaults, sovereign defaults, and certainly this is the one that Robert Prechter believes is the reason that interest rates will start to rise. Well, I believe our next guest, James Rickards, would probably side more than likely with Robert Prechter uh, than with James Turk on this particular issue, although certainly um, Rickards also believes that we could see a massive inflationary problem down the road. It could flip on a dime and could really start to, uh, you know, if, if uh, psychology changes, could really change very quickly. But he mentions, uh, uh, and I heard him yesterday on Bloomberg Radio, Rickards is saying that in spite of all this stimulus, huge amounts, 13 different policy moves in five years, nothing is working to get the economy going. The average people aren't spending. The rich are getting richer, but the economy is not growing. And as I think, you know, what the Fed is trying to do is to use talk. In fact, Janet Yellen recently said, uh, in a very Orwellian sort of manner, she said that communication is now Fed policy. So what Rickards is saying is that um, the that we are back to where we were, what he was saying yesterday on Bloomberg, is that we're very close to what, very, very similar to what was going on in Japan uh, and very similar in many ways to what was going on in the 1930s. Rickards believes, and I'm not sure if he's going to say this on uh, when we talk to him in a few minutes or not, but what he said yesterday was that we could see uh, that at a thousand dollar gold, we, the price isn't high enough. He believes that what's going to happen ultimately is that we're going to have to do in order to get the economy going. The the Fed is going to have to do what Roosevelt did in the 30s, and that's devalue the dollar relative to gold. This is very similar to uh, what we're also hearing uh, from um, James Sinclair. And Rickard says uh, when the lady at Bloomberg suggested that there's not enough time, uh, there's not enough money, uh, that gold isn't priced high enough, Rickard says, yes, it would be at $7,000. Well, we do have to go to break now. When we come back, uh, we will be talking to James Rickards. I'm sure you're not going to want to miss this discussion. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. 
Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine, operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. SGX Resources is an exploration gold company with multiple advanced exploration projects in the Timmins Gold Camp. Recent high-grade intersections at SGX's Tully Deposit include 14 meters at 20.1 grams per ton and 17.6 meters at 11.1 grams per ton. The deposit is currently more than 600 meters along strike with a depth of up to 250 meters and remains open in all directions. SGX Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange with the trading symbol SXR. Visit our website at www.sgxresources.com. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really honored to have with me James Rickards. He's here with me for the first time today. James is a counselor, investment banker, and risk manager with more than 30 years of experience in capital markets. He advises the Department of, Def- of Defense, the United States Intelligence Community, and major hedge funds on global finance, and served as a facilitator of the first-ever financial war games conducted by the Pentagon. A frequent guest on CNBC, CNN, Fox, C-SPAN, Bloomberg TV, NPR. James also lectures at the John Hopkins University and the School of Advanced International Studies. Welcome, James, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. I really, uh, your book is, I must say, before we say anything else, your book, Currency Wars, is a must-read for our listening audience, for sure. I think that what you do is talk about what is really going on in the world, as opposed to a lot of the stuff we hear day in and day out in the mainstream. So I want to thank you very much for your contribution in helping uh, people understand, uh, I think, and provide some very valuable insights for investors. Um, so I, I guess people can pick up this book at any any bookstore probably and, and on the Internet as well. It's obviously uh, was a bestseller. And you've just yeah, now come out with a, a new afterword, which is really a, an update on the currency wars, right? Uh, that's right, Jay. The book's available in the hardback, uh, paperback, and Kindle. Uh, for people who want the e-version, uh, you can buy it in uh, any bookstore or online at Amazon, of course. Um, and the paperback uh, may be a little better value. It's less expensive, but also has some new material. We added a, uh, a new uh, afterward, but it's sort of chapter length and deals with the situation, financial warfare in Iran and the BRICS, so a few things that were not included uh, in the, uh, the hardcover. So I uh, hope, uh, hope the uh, listeners enjoy it. Well, it's a very valuable afterward, I must say, and reading through it, I could identify with those events that you were talking about there. They did come out in the news, though I think the mainstream doesn't necessarily pay all that much attention to it. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I think the afterword is very, very important. I would just say that, and I don't know if we'll have 
have time to discuss that or not. Uh, but but I found it very interesting because you started out uh, the um, uh, the preface of the book with 1971. Uh, August 15th, 1971. I'm old enough to remember it well. I was a young man. I remember reading about it in the New York Times as I rode into New York City on Monday. Uh, and to me, as, as a person who was following gold with a great deal of interest during that period of time as it was rising, the Vietnam War, uh, Johnson's Great Society program going strong, and de Gaulle telling us, uh, give us the real stuff, don't give us your dollars. Uh, it was very fascinating, very interesting to watch. Um, so... Why? Maybe you can explain to our listeners, why did Nixon close the gold window in, on August 15, 1971? Up until that time, foreign countries could trade in their dollars and get gold. They could get an ounce of gold for every $35 they sent back to the U.S. Treasury. Why did Nixon unilaterally decide to essentially cause the U.S. to default on the Bretton Woods Agreement? Well, the reason for that, Jay, was that uh, there were actually two gold markets at the time. The official price under Bretton Woods was $35 an ounce, exactly as you described. And if you were a trading partner with the United States, you know, whether it was France or Netherlands or Spain or Switzerland, and you ran a trade surplus with the United States, that is, you earned dollars trading with us, you could take those dollars. Now, you could do a lot of things with them, uh, but one of the things you could do is cash them in and get gold. And if you did that, it was $35 an ounce. But... There was a private gold market operating mainly out of London at the time, but also elsewhere. And what was happening is because of the things you mentioned, the Great Society program, the war in Vietnam, the beginning in 1969, the budget deficits and uh, trade deficits, which have persisted ever since, uh, and the increase in inflation, the free market price of gold was around $42 an ounce. So it was a very simple risk-free arbitrage. Uh, even if you didn't want the gold, you could cash in at 35 and turn around and sell it to the market at 42 mm-hmm. and make $7 an ounce risk-free. So some people were cashing in to get the gold, and France was included among them, but other countries were saying, I'll, I'll take the free profits. So what had started, I uh, really started in 1968 with the, with the crash of the so-called London Gold Pool, which was a price-fixing operation by the major uh, uh, economies at the time. But by 1971, there was actually a run on Fort Knox. Uh, the rate at which people were cashing dollars to get gold was increasing. Uh, in 1950, the United States had 20,000 tons of gold. By 1970, we were down to 9,000 tons. Mm. We lost 11,000 tons over the course of the 50s and 60s uh, to our trading partners. You say, well, gee, where did the 11,000 tons go? Well, uh, you know, 3,000, you know, round numbers, 3,000 went to Germany, 2,000 went to France, 2,000 uh, went to Italy, 500 went to the Netherlands, you know, et cetera, around the world. And that, that's where the gold went. Well, that was accelerating. It was getting out of control. It was very obvious that Fort Knox was going to be empty uh, in, you know, another year or so. So when, when Nixon said, I'm closing the gold window, uh, it wasn't just a window where you could cash in dollars for gold. What he meant was the window was the arbitrage between the $35 mm-hmm. official price and the $42 free market price. He said, I'm not going to let you know, these speculators, as he called them, uh, take advantage of that anymore. The interesting thing about that announcement, uh, by the way, Nixon did it on television August 15th. 1971, it went on in the evening, interrupted uh, probably the most popular television program in America at the time, which was Bonanza. So if you were waiting for Hoss uh, Cartwright to come out, you, uh, you had to listen to the president for a few minutes. <laughs> but, uh, but closing the gold window was actually the least um, immediately significant of the three announcements he made that night. Of course, historically, we look back, it was a major turning point, mm-hmm. and no doubt about it. But he also imposed nationwide wage and price controls yes. um, and put on a 10% uh, excise tax on all imported goods into the United States. 
Can you imagine a president doing that today? I mean, regardless mm-hmm. of party, Democrat or Republican, going on TV saying, my fellow Americans, as of now, we have wage and price controls on everything in oh. the 10%. So these were, this was an extreme, uh, highly interventionist, by the way. Of course, Nixon was a Republican, but he was far from a free marketeer. Nixon was really more interested in foreign policy than economic policy. And uh, his um, playbook was straight Keynesianism. Uh, so, uh, it was, so we had three, and by the way, the next day, because uh, he did this on Sunday night. That Monday, the stock market had one of its largest um, point price gains, uh, sorry, percentage price gains in history. stock market loved it because clearly it was going to be, you know, a, a period of easy money. Same thing today. The stock market loves easy money. So it was a very, um, you know, again, with hindsight, it looms larger. But at the time, people were... Uh, more focused on the stock market rally and the wage and price controls. So that's uh, very interesting, though. The markets were bidding up the price of gold, uh, the black market, as it were, uh, or the free market, because we were printing lots and lots of money to pay for Vietnam and, and socialism in America, right? And so it was just a natural thing. The, arbit- the arbitrageurs set in and, and, and did their thing. Well, that's right. And in the 60s, because this had really started in the mid-60s. Remember, the Great Society started uh, in 19, early 1965. 65 mm-hmm. was also the year that uh, President Johnson started the uh, drastic expansion of the U.S. presence in Vietnam. Prior mm-hmm. to that, prior to 65, we had a presence there. We had advisors, but 65 was the year when they started sending over tens of thousands of troops. Of course, that was costly, and that started to uh, put us in the budget deficit. So the inflation really took off. You know, with a lag around 68, but through the 60s, they they wanted to eliminate the arbitrage between the official price and the the free market price uh, run out of London. And they had this London gold pool where the major powers pooled their gold and would intervene as buyers or sellers to maintain the price of $35 an ounce. So you didn't have the arbitrage. Mm-hmm. The problem was the market went completely one way, and the the major countries, uh, you know, European trading partners in the United States were constant sellers. They had to, they had to sell gold to keep the price down. So, um, you know, France and others uh, backed out, uh, became chaotic in 1968, and the gold pool was abandoned. Well, once that happened, there was nothing to put a lid on the, the so-called free market price, and as I said, that went up to $42 an ounce, and that was, uh, that was what led to the run of Fort Knox. The repercussions of that, it seems to me, James, to have been very, very profound in terms and favorable, it seems to me, for the United States overall. Because, I, I, uh, well, leading up to that question, I'd like to ask you, why then were other countries willing to accept the dollar when Nixon took us, you know, when, we, when he closed the gold window? A dollar that's backed by nothing now. Why were other nations, was it our strong military, our presence in the world, what, our, our strong manufacturing base at that stage? Why were people still willing to accept dollars uh, that were backed by nothing? Why were other countries willing to do that? Well, they really had no choice. I mean, the dollar was the dominant reserve currency. Uh, you needed it for trade. You needed it, you know, these countries were not only exporters, they were also importers. So they needed dollars to buy goods. And remember, this is, uh, we're talking the early 70s, but it's, it's only, um, you know, less than, uh, well, kind of about 25 years. Uh, at that point from the end of uh, World War II. And, uh, you know, Europe had pretty much recovered, but it had been a very difficult process. So uh, they were still heavily dependent on um, U.S. Uh, markets to buy their goods, you know, whether it was Volkswagen cars or French wine or, you know, vacations in London or, you know, you name it. There were a lot of uh, goods and services going back and forth. So that was that was part of it. It wasn't that the dollar couldn't do anything. Nixon said you can't buy gold. But if you want to come in and buy stocks or bonds or real estate or anything else, uh, you can do that. So the dollar still had some value as um, you know, something that could produce investable assets for you. Uh, so there were a number of reasons to do it. But having said that, 
Um, it was the beginning of a very rocky road for the dollar. It, between 1977 and 1981, the dollar lost uh, 50% of its purchasing power. Cumulative inflation over that five-year period, 77 to 81, was 50%, 5-0. Wow. Remember, the price of oil quadrupled. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, inflation uh, took off. Interest rates hit 15%. Um, and we had border, borderline hyperinflation. Maybe it was hyperinflation, depending on how you define it. Uh, and by the late 70s, uh, there was a serious doubt. But the dollar came very close to collapse in 1979. I mean, there were market mm-hmm. business plans that went to Tokyo, and you check into a hotel and try to cash dollars, and they didn't want them. They're like, well, we don't know what you guys are doing with this dollar. So the dollar came very close to collapse. And at that point, the IMF unveiled a new world currency called the Special Drawing Right, or the mm-hmm. SDR. And the purpose of the SDR was to provide global liquidity at a time when the dollar looked like it might fail. Uh, and if you say, well, gee, if the dollar fails, what, what will countries use? to finance trade and uh, finance the banking system and trade among themselves. And it wasn't clear, but they came up with this new uh, SDR. Now, interestingly, the SDR originally was gold-backed. The, the price mm-hmm. of the, uh, the SDR was set in gold. But that was abandoned very quickly. Uh, and by the late 70s, it was just a, it was paper, um, uh, you know, world money. Uh, they actually called it paper gold, which is one mm-hmm. of the great oxymorons of all time. <laughs> but, um, but they started issuing them uh, in the late uh, 70s early 80s. Um, by the way, there were no issuances of SDRs from uh, the early 80s until 2009. Mm-hmm. So you went almost 30 years. There was no need for an SDR. 2009 was the next time the financial system, the global financial system, was in as much distress mm-hmm. as it was in 1979, 1980. So um, it shows you that the IMF is always ready to trap these SDRs out whenever they're needed. Uh, they're not needed that frequently, but it is the world. So that's the real end of last resort is the IMF balance sheet and the issuance of SDRs. Oh. Um, it seems to me, James, that what this did, though, for the United States was allow us basically to expand our our deficit spending in the government. If I look at the uh, the charts of monetary growth, uh, whatever measure of money you want to use, it started growing very dramatically after 1971. And was this not uh, very, very favorable for the United States expansion of its military presence around the world to finance our military into what is now far and away the most superior military in the world? Well, there's no question about it. I mean, actually going back to the 60s, uh, this is what Charles de Gaulle referred to, the President of France at the time, referred to as the exorbitant privilege, uh-huh. uh, meaning the privilege of the United States to pay its debts in its own currency. Um, but with privileges come responsibilities, with rights come obligations. And the deal is this called the global deal. The United States gets to have the number one reserve currency. We get to pay our bills with money that we print. But in exchange, we're supposed to maintain the purchasing power of that. Well, from 1980 until around 2010, we actually did. You know, we just discussed how the gold standard out of Bretton Woods was abandoned in 1971. I would describe most of the 70s as a period of chaos. Countries didn't know what, what would replace it. They they tried going back to fixed exchange rates at different valuations. That fell apart very quickly. They then went to floating exchange rates. The European um, countries came up with their own uh, European um, you know, exchange rate mechanism. Uh, they called it the snake. Uh, and there were a lot of uh, a lot of developments of that type. But uh, the world kind of stumbled its way to uh, finally in 1980. Uh, Paul Volcker and then uh, in 81, Ronald Reagan, Volcker and Reagan together, 
put the world on the dollar standard. It wasn't mm-hmm. the gold standard. It was the dollar standard. And what we said to the world was, look, we will maintain the value of the dollar. You, our trading partners, can accept the dollars in good faith, knowing that we won't, in effect, steal from you by devaluation. You can invest in our markets, even though you can't get gold. You can buy gold at the market if you want to. You can appreciate or depreciate, but we will make the dollar store value, and you can manage against that. Well, that dollar standard worked fairly well uh, for almost 30 years through uh, Republican and Democratic administrations. Um, you know, Bob Rubin and Bill Clinton were just as supportive of the strong dollar as uh, George Bush and uh, you know, Bush 41 and Ronald Reagan and James Baker and mm-hmm. other people involved. And so that lasted all the way up until 2010. Mm-hmm. That's when the Obama administration, with Geithner and uh, Bernanke on board, abandoned the dollar standard and just said, look, we're out to, that was the beginning of the currency wars, um, we're out to trash the dollar because we want to uh, generate inflation, increase nominal GDP, and generate exports and jobs here. The rest of you guys are on your own. Well, now, for the first time, you have no gold standard and no dollar standard. You had nothing, uh, no standard of any kind. Uh, the world's been adrift ever since. Um, and uh, so that's, that's the situation as it, uh, as it exists today. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that no gold standard and no dollar standard now, and I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, uh, 2010 being a turning point. Um, so the U.S., though, we've had this enormous military that's second to none. Nobody can challenge us, essentially, uh, at least in conventional warfare. Uh, and, and yet we're taking on this other currency ag- aggression, in a sense. Uh, would you, am I overstating it? Is that what the Obama administration is doing? Are we, I mean, I sort of, as I was reading through your book, felt that uh, one of the ideas that I got was that other nations don't have the strong military that we have, but one of the games they can play, one of the things they can do is play games with currency. Uh, in currency wars, especially the creditor nations can. Am I reading this right, or, or, or is the, or is everybody now in a currency war in this whole in this global environment? Well, Jay, I think you're talking about two separate things, and they're both very important. But let me kind of separate them a little bit. Okay, One are the, are the currency wars, which is primarily economic. These currency wars have uh, been fought on and off for uh, you know very long periods of time, and it's basically um, it's not financial warfare. It's an economic competition where a country tries to cheapen its currency uh, ostensibly to promote exports, but the the kind of unspoken reason is actually, you know, remember when you cheapen your currency, maybe your exports get a little cheaper, mm-hmm. and you can sell, in case of the United States, maybe sell a few more Boeing aircraft, uh, general electric wind turbines, as the case may be. But it's also true that your your imports get more expensive. Sure. And the U.S. Uh, imports more than we export, so the net effect of cheapening the dollar is actually inflationary because we have to pay more whether it's energy or manufactured goods or textiles or whatever we uh, bring in from overseas. And the idea there is to create inflation in the U.S. economy, which the Fed is desperate to do. They, have, they haven't been able to do it, actually. I like to say it's a sad thing when the central bank wants inflation and can't get it, <laughs> but that's exactly the situation we find ourselves in today. But they're doing everything possible to get there. So that's what the currency wars are. They are going around the world. Uh, you know, uh, I can draw a straight line from the currency wars to the riots in Brazil. I mean, what's going on going on there is that in 2010, the Brazilian currency was one of the strongest in the world. But the exporters, people like Embraer, a big aircraft manufacturer in Brazil, mm-hmm. and the tourist people, you know, from Rio de Janeiro and others, 
uh, went crying to the central bank and said, you know, you've got to cheapen the currency, you've got to help us out, this is hurting mm -hmm. our sales, etc. The central bank foolishly listened to them, engaged in a series of rate cuts, which mm. um, they shouldn't have done. And, and I said at the time, you're not going to help your exports, all you're going to do is get inflation. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly what happened. They cut rates, uh, they got inflation. Uh, then about a month ago, they because of inflation, they raised the price of a bus ticket, and that's what started the riots. So um, these riots were not, um, you know, it's like an avalanche caused by a snowflake. It may have been a, some proximate cause to it, but the riots are a direct consequence of the currency wars because Brazil was trying to cheapen its currency, and all they got was inflation, and that's all that ever happens. Now, recently... Brazilian central banks said, yeah, inflation is getting out of control. They've had to raise rates in reverse mm -hmm. course, mm -hmm. but they never should have done that in the first place. So mm -hmm. we see the same thing in Australia. Uh, we see it all over the world. So that's the currency wars. But I think the other thing you were referring to mm -hmm. is actual financial warfare, where now it's not an economic competition. It's a military or a strategic or geopolitical oh, confrontation okay. using currencies as weapons, and not just currencies, but maybe stocks, bonds, and derivatives. And mm -hmm. I talk about this in the first two chapters of my book, Currency Wars, where mm -hmm. in 2009, I, I was uh, one of the facilitators uh, and participants in the first ever financial war game conducted by the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, you know, the Pentagon has been having war games for decades, nothing new there. But this was the first time they ever did a financial mm -hmm. war game. So you had the usual teams, you know, you had China, Russia, the United States. We actually created a team that wasn't a country. It was hedge funds and banks. Um, and uh, we, uh, we did this uh, at a top secret weapons laboratory uh, outside of Washington, D.C., in the Maryland countryside. We had participants not just from the military, but the intelligence community, uh, the Treasury, the Federal Reserve, but also uh, outside participants from academia, think tanks, and I recruited a few actual Wall Street traders to come in because mm -hmm. nobody knows more about manipulation than people on Wall Street. Sure. Uh, and we played it out over two days, and, um, you know, as I, uh, uh, I'll leave it to the readers. I don't want to ruin the surprise, so to speak, but it was very interesting, and it was a uh, gold played a very large part in it, but this is uh, this is different. Uh, you know, you mentioned the superiority of the U.S. military. There's no question about that. Um, but if you're China or Russia and you're looking at a confrontation with the United States and you know that you cannot beat us militarily, which they probably cannot, you start looking for other means. This is called asymmetric warfare or unrestricted warfare. So what would those be? Well, it would be you know chemical, biological, radiological weapons, mm -hmm. uh, but also things like cyber warfare and financial warfare. Mm -hmm. So this is the new face of warfare. Why compete with the United States in something where you're going to lose? Try competing in, in a space where maybe the battlefield is a little more level uh, and you have a chance. And so we're seeing the rise of financial threats where, you know, if, if China could destroy uh, the the um, U.S. stock markets and wipe out the wealth of the American people, why wouldn't that be just as effective as dropping bombs? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, I, I guess, the purpose then of the financial war games that you uh, that you engaged in or played uh, at the Pentagon was to help the uh, the the Pentagon and and people in our military understand this aspect of warfare, whereas they're used to conventional warfare and the things they learn. But they, as I understand it, in reading your book, most of these gentlemen had a lot to learn with respect to this other danger that the United States faces. Well, there are new threats emerging all the time. I give the Pentagon a lot of credit for doing the exercise. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe they, they're not, you know, it's hard if you're a three-star general to know what a swap agreement is, but it's sure. becoming more and more important. I mean, you know, a three-star general looks at uh, Greece, and uh, what they see is a NATO ally, uh, controls the sea lanes in the eastern Mediterranean, 
uh, and a good friend of Israel. But of course, if you're Goldman Sachs, what you see is a sucker that you can sell, you know, credit default swaps to. <laughs> well, if you get to the point where they've trashed the economy and the officials have lied about their budget and they've used swaps to cover it up and the economy's uh, imploding on uh, their riots in the streets and smoke bombs outside the parliament, well, uh, if you're the Pentagon, that's cause for concern. So all sure. of a sudden, your three-star general does have to know what a swap agreement is. So you're seeing this convergence of uh, the uh, geoeconomic and the geopolitical, uh, and um, that's what you know. The things like this war game exercise were about, just to uh, acquaint the military with um, the role of uh, financial weapons. I would tell the the listeners that it is a very, very interesting, fascinating account here of the war games that were played and and you cho- chose sides uh, you had you had China Russia the United States you had uh, a group of other countries and you had a referee and it's it's just very interesting that the concept there uh, that that gold was important uh, whereas Americans don't think it is uh, clearly uh, some other people do and um, and the notion, sort of without giving too much away here in the book also, but it, but in the game that was played, it seemed to be that Russia was the most, at least according to this game, I don't know that this plays out in real life, but Russia was the more aggressive uh, country in terms of recognizing the value of gold or how it could be used in a currency warfare. Am I getting that right? Uh, that's correct. I mean, Russia really uh, launched a, it's called a sneak attack, if you will, using gold, and the notion was to um, create a new gold-backed currency, uh, but not just that, but also announced to the world that from now on, uh, if you wanted to buy Russian energy exports of oil or natural gas, they would no longer accept dollars, that they would only accept this new gold-backed currency. And you could get some by putting your gold on deposit. Um, we uh, hypothesized a you know, London bank with a Swiss vault. If you put your gold on deposit, you would get an issuance from the London bank of this new gold-backed currency. You could then use that to buy Russian energy exports. So basically, uh, I mean, nobody thinks you can replace the dollar with the Russian ruble. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But the thought was you could replace the dollar with a new gold-backed currency, provided you had the, le- the right legal arrangements, because nobody, you know, you don't want the Russians to steal your gold. Um, but uh, that could be worked out. Uh, but the other thing that made it intriguing was that Russia tried to recruit China to join it and do the same thing. So again, I'll leave it to the uh, to your listeners to uh, hopefully um, um, kind of get the book and see how that played out. But the point is, it's not uh, a war game exercise. It's not that you're going to unravel the one and only one scenario. There are yes. thousands of ways this could play out. The idea really is just to get some uh, creative thinking going, some out-of-the-box thinking, mm-hmm. so that uh, people can begin to anticipate these threats and prepare for them. I guess what I'd like to ask you, without giving away any more of your book, to what extent the games that were played, the war games, sort of reflect the reality? Because it seems to me from what I'm reading, everything I'm reading to the extent it's true, that there's a huge amount of gold that's being absorbed by China through Hong Kong right now, that the Chinese thirst for gold is enormous, uh, whether that is the official policy of the country or not, I don't know. It's also my understanding that Russia, that China is now the largest gold producer in the world, and they're not exporting it. Do, does that ring true to you? Or do you see it that way? Uh, well, those facts are uh, exactly right, but also, just more specifically with regard to Russia, you know, when we did this, this was 2009, uh-huh. uh, the book came out in 2011, but um, we were kind of laughed at. I mean, this was considered, what, gee, what are you guys talking about? We have these Harvard economists. Or, yeah. You know, why are you talking about gold? Gold has no role in the international monetary system. Well, guess what? Uh, since 2009, Russia has increased its gold reserves uh, about 50% in round numbers, 
When we did the war game, they had 600 tons. Today, they have 900 tons. That's a 50% increase in four years. So uh, we were way ahead of the curve in terms of uh, predicting this. And then as far as China is concerned, you're exactly right. They are both the largest producer in the world, uh, producing about 350 tons a year. Uh, the next closest is somewhere in the low 200s. The other top producers produce you know, around 200, 225 tons a year. China's at 350 tons, but they're also the lar- world's largest gold importer. Mm-hmm. Uh, hard to get exact numbers on that, but possibly as much as um, 700 tons a year. Uh, of course, if you're importing gold, that means you're not exporting any of the mining output, because why would you export if you're importing? So if you combine the 350 tons they're producing and approximately 700 tons they're importing, mm-hmm. there's 1,000 tons a year. Now, it doesn't all go to the government. Some of it goes to is very large consumer demand in China. Mm-hmm. Well, people mm-hmm. line up at these gold boutiques to buy gold, but even if you gave the government, let's say, half, and that's just an estimate, uh, they've acquired several thousand tons since the last time they officially reported. In, in 2009, April 2009, China officially reported that they had 1,054 tons, but they have not changed that number since then, yet everyone knows they've acquired uh, several thousand tons. So China today... Wow. Uh, we don't know the exact number, but estimates are anywhere from uh, 3,000 to 4,000 tons. Mm. Uh, that's not a surprise because they need to sort of achieve parity. You know, it's like the old missile gap from the 1960s. Now we have a gold gap. Um, by the way, uh, you know, you, you hear Bernanke and, um, you know, previously Geithner, Secretary of the Treasury, or others disparage gold. Uh, but the United States has 8,000 tons of gold, and we've had that much since 1980. 1980 was the last time we sold any official gold. Uh, so if it's so worthless, uh, you know, why, why does the U.S. government have 8,000 tons of gold on two military bases? Um, and, um, you know, as they say, we're not, um, not selling any at all. So, um, you know, I think I always say, don't listen to what people say, watch what they do. And the U.S. is holding on to its gold. But the U.S., 70, over 70% of the U.S. Um, foreign exchange reserves are in gold. Wow. Um, the, the comparable number for China is about 1.5%. So think of that. China has $3 trillion of paper and a tiny little sliver of gold. And over the United States, our reserves are over 70% in gold. So wow. it shows you that China has a long way to go to catch up with the United States uh, when it comes to gold. Well, and again, it was a question I was going to pose for you. Why? Why, if if uh, gold is not worth anything, are we holding on to it? Why not sell it and and you know get those valuable dollars, right? So well, I don't know. Exactly. But, uh, it uh, well, it seems well, to me well, that I do. The, the answer is gold is valuable. No one wants to admit it. They just don't want to admit it, and I guess because they don't maybe want the populace to think in those terms uh, and pay too much attention to what is being what is being done um, uh, with our with our budgets and so forth. I suppose. Um, well, I, I have to ask you this, um, uh, James. It seems to me, I'm reading here that India is paying a huge premium now, and I know there's been some restrictions on imports there, so that may, and the people that have to get gold have to pay maybe in the black market or whatever, but there, there seems to be this demand from the BRIC countries, at least Russia, China, and India, for gold, and you know, we're hearing about all this gold that's being bought in the physical market, and yet the gold price is dropping very dramatically here uh, of late. And so how do you account for the disconnect between the paper markets and the physical markets? Well, the, uh, you know, the paper markets, uh, typically what you hear about is the COMEX price or you know, the COMEX closing price for that day. Uh, you know, it's a liquid market. It's a futures exchange. But uh, it doesn't take much to, you know, as they say, paint the tape. If I want to 
drive the, um, the the paper price of gold down. All you do is wait until five minutes before the close and throw in a decent sized sell order and just sit and watch what happens. Uh, but physical gold, you can't do that. It's you know what you see is what you get. So uh, there is a, a premium of physical to paper. Uh, it's not a huge premium, and if it were, it would be arbitraged away. Mm-hmm. But it does exist, and uh, and people watch that premium, and it's getting close to some of the all-time highs. So uh, mm-hmm. what's interesting is uh, uh, you can have uh, a paper gold market, you can have a leverage market. So what, what uh, are technically, is technically called the open interest, uh, the total sort of notional value of all the futures contracts outstanding at any point in time. It's not unusual to have open interest at, you know, 10 or even 100 times the underlying. You, you look mm-hmm. at, for example, the um, 10-year note futures market on the Chicago Board of Trade, uh, the amount of um, sort of notes being traded in futures form is a high multiple of the amount of physical treasury notes that are available, but no one ever takes delivery. What they do is, uh, very few people do, what they do is they pair them off or roll them over or extend them out to the next maturity date or, you know, if you're, if you're long, you go short, or if you're short, you go long, you, you close out your contracts and go on to the next trading uh, quarter. Um, and that's typically what happens in gold, but if you ever had a situation where uh, the, a substantial percentage of the long said, you know what, I think I'll take my gold, please, and just, you know, you give a notice to the COMEX mm-hmm. that you want to stand for physical delivery, uh, it's pretty clear there's not enough gold to satisfy that. But, you know, it hasn't happened, and it may never happen. I mean, people may just be happy trading the paper gold. But at some point, uh, the the, uh, uh, the disjunction gets to be too great, and there's some kind of uh, price correction. Recently, I think it was UBS, um, was it UBS or was another ABN, maybe ABN Amaral, that was not able to deliver gold and, and paid in currency. Um, do you think this is something we might be seeing more of uh, then? Sure. Uh, but if you look at the uh, London Bullion Market Association standard documentation uh, for forward gold trading uh, or even spot gold trading, what's called unallocated gold, uh, those contracts say that you own gold. You buy, you know, you pay a certain amount for it, and you and they say you own gold, and um, uh, you have it in the vault at one of these banks. But if you read the fine print, it says that at any time or based on certain conditions, they can terminate the contract. And what they'll do is they'll pay you the cash difference, so mm-hmm. they won't steal your money. So if you bought your gold at, you know, today it's around twelve twenty or so, uh, and gold goes up to, uh, you know, uh, two thousand, let's say. Uh, and there was a shortage of, you said, I want my physical gold, please, because gold was starting to take off, and there was a shortage of physical gold. What they can do is close out the contract and just send you that check for the difference. They'll send mm-hmm. you the $800 in ounce profit, so mm-hmm. they won't steal your money. But, of course, when will that happen? That will happen at a time when there's sort of a buying panic, and, you know, $2,000 is the next stop on the way to $3,000, yeah. and you'll miss that pop. You'll miss that, you know, you, you'll get your, your check for the difference between where they close you out and where you bought it, but you're going to miss the next day and the day after that and what you really what you really hope to get. So, uh, and by the way, the same thing is true over the Comex. Uh, I, I talked a minute ago about a large number of longs uh, standing for delivery. Well, if that actually happened and there wasn't enough gold, they wouldn't make the delivery. The exchange would say, I'm sorry, um, we're going to trade for liquidation only, which means you can tear off your contract or roll it over. But you can't take physical delivery, and if, you know we'll give you your check for your profits, but no more than that. And if again, if the gold price spiked up afterwards, you would 
miss out on that move. And a lot of the traders say, oh, gee, that's awful, you're changing the rules. Well, they haven't read the rule book, because if you read the rule book, there's a rule that says they can change the rules mm-hmm. uh, when markets become disorderly. So there's, mm-hmm. you know, when you have a rule that says you can change the rules, you're not breaking the rules. But most people are not, you know, they don't read the fine print in the contracts, they don't read... The, uh, the the exchange rule books, uh, I've gone through all that. They rely on what their brokers are telling them. Brokers are not yeah. always perfectly uh, transparent, shall we say. And so I think when, if gold ever does have a super spike up, there are going to be a lot of people left in the dust. Yeah. I have to ask you this, James. We only have a few minutes left here yet. But um, the Germans asked for delivery of some 300 tons. It's supposed to take a number of years to get that delivery to the Germans. Why do you think it's taking so long? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, they actually, uh, Germany has around numbers. They have about 3,000 tons. Um, 1,500 tons is in Frankfurt. Uh, the remainder, most of the remainder is in New York. Uh, so they have, you know, approximately 1,500 tons in New York. Uh, they've asked that to be delivered back to Frankfurt. Um, uh, the Fed has said we'll deliver something like 200 tons a year for the next seven years. Um, uh, so I, I don't, uh, I don't know why that is, unless there's, uh, you know, they're worried about, you know, kind of a run on the bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the thing is, uh, I think listeners should understand that that was highly political in Germany. In other words, uh, actually, my book was the first one that pointed out the fact that as long as your gold is in New York, it's subject to confiscation by the United States. <laughs> um, I think in extremis, the U.S. would basically seize that gold, uh, put it on trucks, send it up the Palisades Parkway to our military vault at West Point, mm-hmm. and then just give the Europeans a do bill, you know, say, here's a piece of paper, you can earn your gold back by trading with us. So mm-hmm. the gold's very vulnerable to confiscation. People say the U.S. would never do that, don't know history. The U.S. has uh, seized assets, uh, you know, as far back as you want to go, but, you know, we took their aspirin from the Germans in World War One. you know, talked to the Iranians about seizing assets or the Syrians or the North Koreans or the Libyans. And by the sure. way, it's another question, where, where's the Libyan gold? I mean, Libya had 100 tons of gold when Gaddafi was in charge. Well, Gaddafi's dead. Where's the gold? You know, mm. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes that sure. people are not aware of. But the point being, uh, that became, uh, I raised that issue a few years ago. It became a political issue. Uh, it's a political issue in Switzerland, the Netherlands, Germany, and elsewhere. So I think that, you know, of course, Angela Merkel is running for re-election. Uh, she's up for election in September. Mm-hmm. Uh, it became an issue in the Bundestag. I think her party felt that they had to do something. But the Deutsche Bundesbank, uh, the central bank, did not want to do it. They were very happy to leave the gold in New York. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think for political reasons, they had to do something. So I think it's just a compromise. Domestic political reasons, yeah. Yeah. Really, Thanks, really. Yeah. It's, um, I, I, speaking of confiscation, um, the Cyprus incident, and I'm reading about how the FDIC and the Bank of England have come together to make plans to bail in uh, in America and elsewhere, if need be, if banks start to run into trouble again, do you think that's a, that's a, a possibility? And it's my understanding also that as a depositor at a bank, I am a an unsecured lender to that bank, and so you know I'm I'm at risk. Well, of course you are. I don't know why that comes as a surprise to anyone. Yeah. I mean, why, why do you have insurance if you're not at risk to begin with? Right. Um, you're, you're insured up to the insured amount, but everything above that, yeah, you're just an unsecured creditor to the bank. Yeah. And that is, that is the template. Now, it wasn't really activated in 2009, uh, 2008, 2009, because the banks were bailed out. But if they yeah. get tired of bailing them out, if they can't afford to bail them out, bondholders are at risk, equities at risk, and depositors uh, above the insured limit are at risk. So I know it's making a lot of headlines, but it really, it's always been Nothing true. Nothing new. It really comes as no surprise. Yeah. yeah. Again, I think it's an example of, uh, 
you know, uh, people buy gold and don't read the contract. They trade gold futures and don't read the rule book. They put money in the bank and don't read the deposit agreement. Mm-hmm. If you actually study all this stuff, you'll find out that, you know, you're at risk everywhere. It's just most people are kind of uh, unaware. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm uh, really sorry to say we're out of time, James. Uh, there's so much more to ask you about. I would just tell our listeners uh, the best thing they can do is go out and buy Currency Wars, The Making of the Next Global Crisis, and uh, by James Rickards. Uh, get the paperback version because it does have an afterword, which really brings us up to date with some more recent incidents that have taken place involving Iran, the U.S. Uh, confrontation with Iran, and some of the unintended consequences that have uh, that have occurred as a result of some of our policies towards Iran. Very interesting stuff. More than just interesting, it's apropos to uh, to the way we plan our lives. In the, uh, going forward into the future. So I want to thank you very much, James, for being with us. Folks, uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with our next guest. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property, a large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. 